Psalm 88, verses 1 through 6 and 10 through 18. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Today we begin a short series in the book of Job, and our series title is When Life Hurts. Not if life hurts, but when life hurts. Johnny Erickson Tata broke her neck in a freak diving accident at the age of 17. She has lived as a quadriplegic ever since. Of suffering, she said, we know that suffering is a strange, dark companion, but a companion nonetheless. It's an unwelcome visitor, but still a visitor. If suffering is or has been a companion of yours, even just a visitor, you need Job. You need the message of Job. We'll become more familiar with Job's story over the next few weeks. Job felt suffocated by suffering. Uh, We learn in chapter 9, verse 18, that Job felt even unable to breathe. He wrote, he, speaking of God, will not let me get my breath. Perhaps this morning you feel something like Job, suffocated by your own suffering and unable to breathe. In her book, The Scars That Have Shaped Me, How God Meets Us in Suffering, uh, Vanitha Rendell Reisner writes this, I am well acquainted with suffering. Many of you are reading this book. Many of you reading this book are as well. And suffering has carved hollows into your soul. Some of you may even feel abandoned by God as trials have threatened to overwhelm you. I honestly have felt that way too, both as an unbeliever, she writes, and as a committed Christian. Now, 
before you question Vanitha's ability to endure suffering, like maybe you think she just does not have a high threshold for difficult seasons, I just listened to part of her story. As an infant, she contracted polio. She was misdiagnosed, failing to receive appropriate care. Then by age 13, Vanitha had undergone 21, had, had undergone 21 surgeries because of that misdiagnosis and the complications with polio. She was relentlessly bullied because of her physical limitations and her scars. In graduate school, she, she married and had a son followed by three miscarriages. She became pregnant again with a son that they named Paul. Paul was born with a serious heart defect and he died only two months, at only two months old because of a doctor's mistake. Years later, Vanitha developed post-polio syndrome resulting in increasing pain and weakness, which could potentially lead to quadriplegia. Basically, the more she does now, right now, the less strength she will have in her future. She's spending what she could have years from now. A short time later, after this diagnosis, her husband uh, left her and eventually divorced her, leaving her single with several adolescent, ch adolescent children to care for while enduring this disability. Suffering has certainly caused uh, carved hollows into Vanitha's soul. And grappling with the reality of pain and suffering is an all too familiar part of life for many of you. Perhaps some of us, though, have lived lives of relative ease, right? Serious pain and suffering feel like distant enemies with borders between us. We rarely encounter them. We don't know them at all. They're not, certainly not house guests, not even visitors. Some of you, perhaps, though, know pain and suffering as unwelcome house guests, and the closer that pain and suffering come, whether in our own lives or in the lives of people that we, we love, the more we tend to wrestle with their presence, perhaps with questions like these. If God loves me, then why? Fill in the blank. If God loves them, then why? Or why does God allow good people to suffer? The age-old question. Thankfully, the biblical narrative does not shy away from the realities of pain and suffering, so we don't have to shy away from that conversation either. In Genesis, we learn that pain and suffering are common in our world because of sin, or you might say because of our rebellion from God. Not necessarily that all of my suffering is because of my own personal sin, though we need to hear this. At times, you do suffer because of your rebellion from God. That is true. At times we suffer because of another person's sin. In their rebellion from God, they have inflicted deep wounds on us. And because our world is broken generally and under the curse of sin generally, suffering is a normal part of our existence. Not necessarily my rebellion, not necessarily your rebellion. We just live in a broken world waiting for the redemption of Jesus. So suffering is a consequence of rebellion from our creator God and his good design. Then in the prophets, we learn that God is sovereign over our suffering and that he works redemptively through pain and through suffering for his glory and for your good. And we saw this most recently in Daniel where we learned of our good sovereign king who is supreme over all things. And what that means is he is supreme over every moment that we spend suffering. He's sovereign over that. Then... 
We move from the prophets to the wisdom books. We encounter the wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, to name a few. And each of these books offer different but complementary perspectives on suffering. We need every one of them. The Psalms don't really work to answer the why questions, do, do they? they? They don't really help us with why are we suffering. What the Psalms do for us as a friend is they help us learn how to give appropriate voice to our suffering. I think in something like a third of the Psalms are actually lament Psalms, um, teaching us how to cry out to God, but also giving us the permission. Um, it's biblically right to pray raw, aggressive, even fully honest prayers to our Creator. So the Psalms help us learn how to pursue God when he feels distant. Proverbs, on the other hand, you familiar with Proverbs? It's all about maxims. Um, if this, then that. So if Proverbs were your friend, and he is, he would look you in the eyes and he'd say to you, uh, without hesitation, you're likely suffering because you've been an idiot. You've been lazy. You're not working, you haven't managed your money well, you're not wise with your sexuality, you're viewing porn, you're considering committing adultery, you won't listen to correction, you've made all the wrong friends, you don't seek after wisdom. Don't be an idiot and you won't suffer. That's Proverbs. And Proverbs is usually right, okay? So you need that friend in your life. Now where Proverbs answers with maxims, Ecclesiology, Ecclesiastes acknowledges the mess of life. This world is messy, life is messy, and it does not always fit neatly within the clean parameters of a maxim. If Ecclesiastes were your friend, he would look you in the eye and he'd say, uh, from his skinny jeans and his flannel shirt and all that, Ecclesiastes is definitely the millennial. Um, he would look at you and he would say, man, you suffer, friend, because, well, I don't really know. Like, I don't really know exactly why you're suffering because life is complicated. I look over there and I see good people suffering and I look over there and I see people who hate God um, doing evil but flourishing while they take advantage of people and continue rebelling from God. It doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. Life is messy and... You're suffering, and I don't have good hard answers for you. Um, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, which I, I highly recommend, Tim Keller observes this. He said, while the human race as a whole indeed deserves the broken world it inhabits, nevertheless, evil is not distributed in a proportionate fair way. Bad people do not have worse lives than good people, generally. And of course, the best people, he writes, often have terrible lives. Job is one example, and he's right. Tim Keller's right. Job is one example, and we're going to consider Job for the next few weeks. Now, some of you know the book um, and the character. It's not just the name of the book. It's the name of the, the main character. You know, you know it well. Maybe you've read the entire book before, and that'd be awesome. Perhaps some of you knew that Job was a book in the Bible, but not much more than that. Maybe you've not read it all the way through. You've read the first two or three chapters, which is all the drama, and then you tap out in about 30 chapters of arguments. Like, it's just this repetitive cycle of arguing, right? So you tap out. Some of us here may be like, Job who? If you've listened to Kanye's new album, have you? If you have, uh, it's entitled Jesus' is King, in case you've not been on the internet for the last three weeks. 
you probably picked up on one of his lyrics he said, in which he was talking about his understanding of God and the Bible before he was rescued by God. And he writes, back when I thought the book of Job was a job, right? That's phonetically, you'd read it and you're like, job, oh, cool, book on how to like get a job, keep a job, thanks God, that's helpful. But to be fair to Kanye in his pre-Christian expression, um, the book of Job is a job, I mean, it's, it's intense. It's work. It's, it's heavy to pick this thing up. I love what uh, a guy named R. Kent Hughes says of Job. He says, Job is a fireball book. He says, it's a staggering, honestly book. It is a book that knows what people actually say and think, not just what they say publicly in church. It knows what people say behind closed doors and in whispers. And it knows what we say in our tears. It's not merely an academic book. If we listen to it carefully, it will touch us, trouble us, and unsettle us at a deep level. And I'm just going to be honest, like we will read some unsettling things this morning and we won't work to answer all of them. And if you read through Job, you're going to encounter a lot of unsettling things and you're not going to find all the answers for those unsettling things in Job and that's good for us. So Job takes the maxims of Proverbs and the mess of Ecclesiastes, and he mashes them together like my kids mash together different colors of Play-Doh, and they become inseparable. You can't pick them back apart in Job. The maxims and the mess of life are all mashed together in the true story of Job and his suffering. And in Job, we'll see that the causes of and the reasons for suffering can certainly be mysterious, even unknowable in this lifetime and seemingly unjust. So we need all the wisdom books. Maybe it would help us if we think of it this way. Life is mostly Proverbs. Life is mostly what you do with the maxims in Proverbs, whether you fear God or not. So life is mostly Proverbs, but there's a lot of Ecclesiastes thrown in. It's just a broken world. And there will be seasons of Job. In every life. So life is mostly Proverbs with a healthy dose of Ecclesiastes framing the whole thing in, marked by um, distinct um, and difficult seasons of Job. Now we don't know when the events in Job occurred, nor do we know when the story was compiled. Many people actually think Moses did us this favor, and they're probably right. There's a lot of evidence that would suggest, along with the Pentateuch, Um, the first five books of the Bible, Moses probably compiled the story for us as well. We generally know where the events took place. Here's a nifty little map, because everybody likes a nifty little map. If you read verse 1, we read that it takes place in the land of Uz, which basically for us today is northern Saudi Arabia, south Jordan. But we don't know any detail beyond that. Just boom, that big swath of land somewhere. That's where Uz was. But we're just not given many contextual specifics, and that's okay because God gives us everything that we need to know about the book. And what is, listen, what is clear from the lack of contextual details in Job is this. The author's focus is strictly on the content of the book, and that's where our focus should be too. We don't really need to worry about where and whose they were, who compiled it when exactly it took place. Those details, it's a timeless story. It's a true story. Job actually did exist. 
But the focus is strictly on the content. We need the message of Job. So we'll be here for the next three Sundays, but I'll just be honest with you. The first, the, one of the commentaries that I really like that I, that I spent some time in this week, um, he developed it because he wrote a sermon series, probably 40-something sermons. And the first chapter was spent explaining why pastors should never condense this book down into a series of three sermons. It's a shameful thing to do. I'm like, this is a good commentary. We're gonna get along just great. So we're going to condense it down into three weeks because in, in his context, people live for a lifetime and don't move. And in our context, I see you for three months or three years and you're gone. So we need a broad diet from the scriptures. I'm not, we're just not going to spend a year in Job or somebody spent 12 years in Romans, I think, in one town that I, that I read about. Like We can't do that here. Be fun, but we can't do that here. But here's what I want to ask you to do. Since we're only here for the next three Sundays... Um, especially if suffering is your companion or has been or will be, which it will be because dad always said there are two kinds of motorcyclists in the world, those who have put their bike down already and those who will. So there are two kinds of human beings in this room. Those of you who have suffered profoundly already and those of you who will, you're going to need Job. Would you be willing to do some additional work with me in the next couple of weeks? Would you be willing um, to read through Job once per week? So that's all 42 chapters of Job over the course of a week, for three weeks, and we will have read it three times together um, during the series. Look, I read slowly, okay? My, comp- my reading comprehension is subpar. Well, I mean, it's mine, so it's par. It's just who I am, right? <laughs> Nothing wrong with a sixth grade level when you're 30-something. I renew library books at least twice before I bring them back, okay? So that's my pace, so we can do this. Um, I timed myself this week, and high or low, it's right around, it kind of averages out to an hour um, to read through this book without too many distractions. Um, Just 10 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, we can can do that together. Um, We need the message of Job. Now, just big picture, after a brief introduction in Job, right, after the first couple chapters, Job can be broken down into three sections. We'll we'll name them uh, this way. Section number one is lament expressed, okay? Um, God allows profound suffering in Job's life and Job laments, section one. Section two, limitations exposed. If you're familiar with the book, Job and several of his friends argue and argue and argue and argue and argue for most of the book about why Job is suffering. But the reality is their limitations to comprehend what is going on are all exposed. And that's exactly what happens to us when we try to figure out why we are struggling or suffering. Our limitations to comprehend will we'll just be clearly exposed. So lament expressed, limitations exposed. Number three, longings experienced. We just want God to show up and make things clear. We long for his presence. He feels distant and suffering. So God shows up, he speaks, he sets the record straight, and Job repents. And Job trusts God, even though many unanswered questions remain. All we're going to do this week is explore the introduction and the first section, Lament Express. Next week, we'll hit Limitations Exposed, and the third, final week of Job, we'll make that pastor in England proud and wrap the series with uh, Longings Experienced. All right, so here's our summary sentence for the morning. When life hurts, lament helps me worship God, helps me take my first steps toward hope and healing, and gives voice to my deepest pain. When life hurts, lament helps me worship God, 
helps me take my first steps toward hope and healing and gives voice to my deepest pain. Now with that in mind, let's actually read a little bit of Job, okay? Because we've not all read through the book, and even if we had, uh, the refresher will do us good. I'm going to start at 1-1, and we'll read into the first part of chapter 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man, man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job had said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, or the Satan as it would be in the original, the Satan also came among them. The Lord said to the Satan, from where have you come? And the Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Come on. Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face, God. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, All that he is is in your hand. All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan again, have you considered my servant Job that there was none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you, Satan, incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. 
And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, Satan, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now we just saw four important pieces of information crucial to helping us navigate the message of Job. Number one, Job was a good man. Number two, God is sovereign over Job's suffering. Number three, God works for our good through suffering. Satan works for our destruction. And number four, we may not be asking the right questions in our suffering. All right, number one, Job was a good man. Look, the Bible says here Job is blameless. That is, Job is genuine. He's authentic. There's an integrity in Job's heart. He's the same guy in private as he is in public. He's not sinless. The Bible doesn't talk about any man or woman outside of Jesus that way. So that's not what it's saying. It's just that Job is the same guy on social media as he is all alone at home and nobody can see him. That's what it's saying. No fronting. Like Job actually really does love God in public and in private. He's a true follower. You're not going to be surprised by some misconduct that comes to light through investigative reporting or witnesses that finally came forward in the future uh, next year. Job is the real deal. So he's blameless. He's also upright. Uh, this word shifts attention away from Job's personal character uh, ever so slightly to the way that Job treats other people. He treats others the way that God intended, worthy of love and respect because they're all created in the image of God. We get a couple examples if we read through the book. Here's one in Job 29, 12. It says that Job delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. That's, that's Job. And here's another example, chapter 29, verse 15. Job was the eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. That's a really good guy right there. He was a father to the needy and he searched out the cause of him whom he did not know. And then my favorite sentence, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Job's the dude you want your sons to grow up to be. Like, be that guy. That's awesome. That's Job. And one more example, Job says, from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as with a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. Job's a really good man. And so it seems like his life goes on to verify the maxims and proverbs about doing good and getting good, right? He's got an ideal family. He has seven sons, the number of perfection, and God gave him three daughters. Job is a happy dad. His kids enjoy being with each other. Did you see that in the text? Even as adults, Job's kids still got together to party. Like they liked each other. Good family. Job is a happy dad. Job was a really, really good father. You saw this too. He made sure his kids were good spiritually. And in verse five, we read that Job would wake up early in the morning after every one of his kids' parties um, just to offer sacrifices on behalf of his kids. Why? Well, we saw what Job said. He said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. And additionally, we read that Job was wealthy. Back then, wealth was measured by livestock. And you saw the numbers, right? He was a wealthy man and he was powerful. The, the author says that Job was the greatest of all the people of the East. 
So he's the dude that could run for the office of president without the party affiliation and maybe actually make it in. Like that's, that's Job. He's that guy, but he's a good guy. So we have to ask ourselves, why does the author lead with Job is a really good guy? Why is that the start of the book? That's the start of the book so that when we read about Job's suffering, it will be clear to us, we'll understand that Job is not suffering because he is a bad guy. In fact, the maxims of Proverbs explode in Job. His story helps us understand that while the maxims of Proverbs are true, they are not all guarantees. They're not universally applied in life. And look, the story of Job pushes back on all Christian cliches. I can't even say the word cliches. It pushes back on all of them. It pushes back on um, bumper sticker Christianity, and it pushes back on any easy answer to life's complicated struggles. For example, when somebody asks the questions, hey, John, why do good people suffer so much? Many Christians like to respond, and I understand where they're coming from theologically. Uh, We like to respond, well, no one is good, right? We even read that in the New Testament. Nobody is good but God, like he's God. But what's the problem with that quick kind of simple answer to all suffering? It implies always and at all times that people suffer in direct relationship to the wrongdoing or the rebellion that they have done. But is that what we encounter in Job? That's not what we encounter there. He's a good man, not a sinless man. He still needs a savior, but he is a good man. And the author is letting us know that Job does not suffer because of his sin in this story. I'm telling you, the book of Job is going to kick the legs out from under all of our dogmatic maxims of life. Or how about this one? How do you think Job would look at you if you told him that God would never, ever, ever give him more than he could handle? How easily does that roll from our lips? He'd look at you sideways, man. He might turn his back and walk away. Um, Job blows that notion up. Blows it up. All right, Job was a good man. Number two, God is sovereign over Job's suffering. In Job's introduction, we get a glimpse behind the scenes. We get a front row view in heaven's courts. Now, mind you, Job and his friends were not given this view nor did they have access to what we're reading here. It's not like Job read chapter one of Job before he suffered, okay? So let's be fair to the guy and fair to his friends. We can't expect them to wrestle with Job's suffering in the same way that we will now that we've read all this. But in this scene, we see God and we see the sons of God. Think of those guys, those, they're not people, the sons of God. Think of them as God's divine counsel, or as one guy said, it's really helpful, his staff team. That's his staff team, through which God governs his cosmic domain. And then we see somebody the author calls the Satan, or literally the accuser or the adversary, who's present with the staff team. He's in there with this counsel. And here's what the author wants us to see as it relates to Job's suffering. Who initiated the conversation? God did, right? God initiates the conversation with Satan. He said, verse eight, have you considered my servant? Who allowed the suffering? God did. God allows the Satan to cause suffering. He says in verse 11, behold, all that Job has is in your hands. But God also limits the suffering that Satan is allowed to inflict upon Job. Verse 12 of chapter one, God says, only against him, do not stretch out your hand against his life. You can't take his life. You cannot affect his health. That was in chapter one, but then we see kind of part two in chapter two, the same pattern plays out and God says, behold, Satan, he he is in your hand. You can affect his health. You can take it away, but you will not take away his life. So who's sovereign over Job's suffering? God. 
He initiates the conversation. He allows the suffering and he limits. He puts the limits on the suffering that Job can experience. So what does the author want us to see? God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely supreme. We don't like this, but even in our suffering. What we need to see in this is God is not weak. God is not on the sidelines. God is not on one sideline and Satan on the other as if they're opposing teams of equal strength, like the game you're going to watch tomorrow. It's not like that. God and Satan are not equals in any way. God is supreme over Satan in every way. And their their purposes in suffering are radically different from each other. That's number three. God works for our good through suffering, but Satan works for our destruction. We saw this in chapter two. It says um, of of the Satan, God says that he incited God against Job. Why? What What was he trying to incite him to do? destroy him. That's, that was Satan's goal in the suffering. I want to destroy Job. That's his aim in your suffering too. The Satan wants to absolutely destroy you and destroy your trust of the father. But God delights in Job. He says, have you considered my, he's my servant. He's mine. And I love him. He's my servant. There's no one like him on the earth. He's a blameless and upright man. He fears me and he turns away from evil. So the Satan accuses, but God affirms Job. Satan says, Job will curse you and die, God. But God says, we will move closer together in the suffering. Satan says, I'm going to sabotage his trust of you. God says, suffering will prove to strengthen Job's trust of me instead. Satan wants him dead. God wants Job to know life in him above all else. As Tim Keller says, suffering is not outside of God's plan. Suffering is a part of God's plan. God will use suffering to test Job. He will use it for Job's ultimate good. And what is that ultimate good? That God, here, listen, because here's what's going to happen. God will allow all of the good gifts that he has given Job to be stripped away so that it can be seen whether Job loves God for God or if he loves God for all the good gifts that God has given him. Satan aims for this reality to destroy Job, but God aims for this to deepen Job's faith. Number four, we may not be asking the right questions in our suffering. Someone once said this, and I think it's really helpful. We see the Bible as a book of answers to our questions. But if we let the text speak, we find that we are not even asking the right questions. This is one of those moments that we need to let the text speak. Because if left to ourselves, we bring the wrong questions to Job, and we bring the wrong questions to our suffering. You know who actually gives us the right question? Got to give him credit for this one. The Satan. He does. The Satan actually gives us the main question, does Job worship God because God is worthy of worship or simply because God has given Job lots of good stuff and a healthy life? Satan says, does Job fear God for no reason? No, there's a ton of reasons why Job loves you, God, and none of them are because you're good. You've just given him a lot of stuff. You've put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased. Who wouldn't like you? You're like the genie in Aladdin. You give him everything he wants. Of course he likes you. Of course he's going to come back to the lamp again. You always say yes. Say no and he'll turn his back on you and curse you, God. Satan to God. Satan says, Job doesn't love you. You're not worthy of his worship. Job only loves and worships you because you give him lots of stuff. 
Does Job really love or fear God? Of course, like we said, Job and his friends don't hear this conversation. They don't read this chapter, so they don't, they don't, they don't get this piece of it. So their questions actually are more like ours. They are. Job wonders throughout the whole book, is God just? Like, I always thought he was just, but is he? In chapter 19, verse 7, Job says, I call for help in my suffering, but there is no justice. I thought there was, but I don't get any. So Job wonders, is God just? And Job and his friends begin to wonder, does God really run the world with justice? Like the maxims in Proverbs, is that even the way that the world works? Job in chapter 31, we read these questions. He says, is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity, rebels? Doesn't he see my ways and number all my steps? Like what's going on? Can't God see that I've lived the first half of all the maxims in Proverbs? Where are the matching corresponding second halves? This is not the way that life is supposed to work. And Job's friend Bildad gets angry at this suggestion and he says to Job, come on, Job, does God pervert justice? No, God never perverts justice. You are the problem. He even even goes so far to tell Job, like shortly after his kids were dead, your kids are dead because they were terrible kids. Like God just took them from you. So these are more like our questions, right? Why am I suffering? If God is good, why? What we're getting at is the justice of God and how God runs this world. So these are the three questions that we should be asking throughout Job and in our own suffering. Do I worship or do I love, do I fear God because God is worthy of my worship, my love, or my fear, or because God has given me lots of good stuff and a healthy life? Do I love God for God or do I love God for the stuff that he's given me and now it's gone and I don't love God anymore? The second question, is God just? Can I trust him? And the third question, does God really run the world with justice. And again, a fair warning, if you read Job hoping that the why questions are answered, you will be disappointed. But if you're willing to read Job with the three questions we just gave, uh, you will get something far better. All right. Now with that background, and before we begin wrestling with these questions next week, okay, next week, don't sweat. Let's just consider first Job's initial response to this untold suffering, his lament. So what is lament? We don't use that word very much. What is lament? What is it? Lament, this is just my quick definition, then I'll give you a summary that somebody else gives. Lament is the raw expression of my deepest pain to my father. That's what lament is. Lament is the raw expression of my deepest pain to my father. But I like how Mark uh, Vrogop summarizes lament. He says, lament turns toward God When sorrow tempts you to run from him, lament is a form of prayer. It is more than just the expression of sorrow or the the venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about the pain. Lament has a unique purpose, and that purpose is trust, rebuilding trust. Lament is a God-given invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations, and our sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. So family, this is what we need to see in Job and in our own suffering. Lament is God's gift to us in our pain and in our suffering. You may feel like every other gift has been taken away, and maybe it has been. Lament is the gift that remains in the suffering. Vanitha Rendell adds, she said, When pain almost strangled me and darkness was my closest friend, 
I wondered what should I do because for years I thought the best response was cheerful acceptance. Because since God uses everything for our good and his glory, at least like that's what we read in scripture, then I felt the most God-honoring attitude was to appear joyful all the time, be a good Christian, even when I was confused and angry, even when my heart was breaking, and especially when I was around people who didn't know Jesus. But then she says, I have since learned the beauty of lamenting in my suffering. Lamenting highlights the gospel more than my stoicism ever could. Man, and I agree with that. If there's a tendency for this culture in this room, for most of you, we uphold the virtues of stoicism. Like, just be a stoic. That's strength, that's beauty, that's imago Dei. Like, don't be weak. Don't show weakness or emotion. Do you know that your stoicism actually stifles the imago Dei in you? Do you know that? It is this gift of lamenting that actually, it's the one way you express the image of God in you when you are suffering and knowing untold pain. Gotta be careful with stoicism. There are some good virtues to it, but it is not a complete and perfect system, and that's one of the ways that it fails us. So here's a personal confession. I do just naturally in my spirit and in my upbringing and in things I like, I do tend towards stoicism, right? I think a lot of us do. That's not a badge of honor, though. That is a badge of profound gospel deficiency and weakness. I don't lament well. So I need to learn from Job and Venetha and Johnny Erickson Tata, and maybe you do too, right? This is why we need Job. We need to learn to lament. So when life hurts, lament helps me worship God, helps me take my first steps toward hope and healing, and gives voice to my deepest pain. Lament helps me worship. Let me just read from chapter one again and then into chapter two. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Chapter two, verse nine. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job was helped by lament. It helped him worship. Lament is actually an act of worship. Like we are worshiping God when we lament in our sorrow. What we see here in this passage is that lament aligns all of my life so that I can give attention to my pain and to my sadness. Again, Venetha said this. She said, part of really living is being willing to face sadness, not wallowing in my pain and refusing to be comforted, but honestly and openly telling God where I am and asking him to show me the truth, to help me. And so what did Job do to align all of his life through lament? He tore his robes in expression of his torn heart. He shaved his head and he fell to the ground in mourning. Now, that was cultural. We don't, we don't do those things. We don't, in lament, we don't go rip our clothes in public. We don't shave our heads and we don't fall down on the ground and mourn. If you do, I mean, you're probably gonna get a lot of attention that you don't want, right? It's, it's just not, then it would have been culturally normally, normal for us. It's not, but what's going on? In those culturally appropriate expressions, Job is just aligning his entire being, his entire life with what is going on inside. He's removing every distraction from the pain. I'm going to focus on this. And he's not allowing himself to be numbed by any other comfort, 
whether that's alcohol or binging on TV or just sleeping or just exercise. I'm just going to go to the gym. I'm just going to go to the gym, right? No distractions and no numbing. I'm going to align all of my life with this lament so that I can give full attention to pain and sadness. That's an act of worship. Lament acknowledges complete dependence on God. Job says, I'm at his mercy. He gave to me and he has taken away from me. That's the story of my life. And that is this narrative for every life in here. There is nothing that you have that has not been given to you by God. And at some point, he will, he will bring it all back. It's his. All, everything I have to include my own life is his. Lament keeps us engaged with God. Lament invites him into our suffering. And in our lamenting, we may curse many things. Do you know that? Like in biblical laments, you find the freedom to curse many different things. We're going to see that here in a minute. Uh, but not God. Uh, in his lament, Job blesses God's name. His wife encourages him to curse God and die. But guys, listen, we should be slow to condemn her because Job's losses were hers too, right? I know the story is about Job, but here she is. She just lost all of her kids. And really, she's lost her husband. She's lost it all. And so she is speaking out of extreme grief and loss. And I would just ask us, have we not actually said or thought worse in the face of far less suffering? I think many of us have. I have. Um, so let's be easy on Job's wife. But Job says, no, I'm not going to do it. I will curse a lot of other things right now, but I am not going to curse my God. So lament helps me worship. Lament also helps me take my first steps toward hope and healing. Look at the end of chapter two. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him, good friends. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Lamenting is lonely work. Job sits alone in the ashes, which culturally was probably the garbage dump. Like that's, that was your burn barrel. That's where the, all the waste, all of it was burned. He sits here alone. And here alone, lamenting is acutely focused on suffering. His suffering was very great. Lamenting is overwhelming, shocking to friends. You notice as his friends approached, they didn't even recognize the guy anymore and all they could do was cry. They wept with him, but they didn't recognize Job. Your friends probably won't recognize you in your lamenting and that's okay. You're not gonna recognize your friends when they lament and that is okay. Lamenting is slow work. Job sits in the ashes for one week contemplating and then expressing Lamenting is for a season. It is not forever. There are silence for seven days and nights, but this lament is necessary because this week, these seven days precede the next 40 chapters in Job. And we want to get to that conversation, but you can't if you're not lamenting or you will get there in a cold, clinical, theory, maxim kind of way, which will not do your heart any good. Lamenting is necessary. Job would not make it out of the ashes without his lament. He would not make it to restoration and healing without these moments of lament. Guys, lamenting is the first step in a long, slow journey. There's no quick fix for your pain. There is no easy solution to personal suffering. Lament is hard, but it is the healing road. 
And we don't know healing apart from the lament. Because lament gives voice to my deepest pain. We'll start wrapping it here, but let's just look at some of what Job has to say in his lament. After this, chapter 3, verse 1, Job opened his mouth and cursed, cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those cursed who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. I hate the day of my birth and the night of my conception. That's verses 1 through 10. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I come out from the womb and why didn't I just die when I came out? Why did the knees receive me or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and just been quiet. I would have slept and then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? I want that over the life I have. There are the wicked, there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, that's what he wanted, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Guys, lament is frozen in time. It looks back, but it cannot look forward. You can't look forward with hope in lament. Job curses the day of his birth in as many ways as he could think of. I wish I'd never been born. He's shockingly honest and repetitive. Did you know that in his lamenting? Did you see it? He longs for his death. Guys, in despair, in lamenting, death appears better than the life we have. And so lament asks desperate questions. We, we read a bunch of them. Basically, all of them getting to this, this, this question, why did I not die at birth? Why did God allow me into this? But lament feels unheard. Shortly after C.S. Lewis's wife died, he wrote this. He wrote, when you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing God, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, uh, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. Hey, son. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. And the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no, there are no lights in the windows and it may be an empty house. And you are left asking, was it ever inhabited? So it seemed once. That's what C.S. Lewis says. Guys, that's, 
Lament expresses what I truly feel, like we just read, even if how I truly feel is not actually true, right? And this is one of the reasons that God commends Job at the conclusion of the book. Even if Job did not always say the right thing about God, he kept pursuing God in his pain. And this is also one of the reasons that Job repents at the end of the book, because in his lamenting, he did say a lot of things about God that were not altogether true, but he still receives affirmation and condemnation. Yeah, not condemnation. He was commended affirmation and commendation from his father. Friends, that's good news for you in your lamenting. In Job, we see the permission, even the created design, the expression of the Imago Dei, that you would talk this kind of way in pursuit of your father. It's good news for you. It's often hard to find Jesus in our suffering, and it's difficult to see Jesus in Job too. But if we have eyes to see, Job's story foreshadows the good news of the gospel in this way. Jesus is the true and better Job. Job had all of his riches and comfort taken away, but Jesus willingly gave away his riches and his comfort in pursuit of rebels like you and me. Job, a good man, endured suffering he did nothing to earn. But Jesus, the perfect man, endured the suffering I did everything to earn. Job lamented for himself. Jesus lamented for me, an undeserving rebel. Job experienced near total darkness. He was breathless in his suffering. Jesus actually did experience total darkness, taking his last breath, suffering on the cross in my place. Job felt distant and cut off from God in his suffering, even though he was not cut off, as if the Father had turned his face away. But Jesus was completely cut off from the Father in his suffering. The Father did turn his face away from Jesus, Jesus in my place. Job had good but inadequate friends in his suffering. We'll meet them a lot more next week. But Jesus is the true and better friend in our suffering. He is there in the ashes. He redeems, he refines, he rescues, he restores, he sustains, he comforts, he holds, he listens, he helps. And this friend speaks true and kind words. Jesus does not waste a single moment of your suffering because what others mean for your destruction, Jesus always redeems for my good. Close with this. Vanitha said, I have been tempted to turn away from him in my pain, wondering why a good God would let his children suffer. Yet the Lord has proven faithful as he has filled those hollow places with an overflowing joy. Leaning into Jesus, she says, I have discovered that he alone is my greatest treasure and walking with him is my greatest joy. But guys, that that does not happen without the lament. We have to walk the long, slow, hard road of lament in order to say and write exactly what she just did. My encouragement to us this morning is this. In our suffering, lean into Jesus. You will find there that he is already leaning into you. And we begin leaning into Jesus in our suffering through lament. That's the only way you can lean into Jesus in the suffering. You lean into him through lament. And so as we pray here right now and as we sing and then as we exercise, practice communion, I would encourage you, ask God to help you begin expressing lament where lament needs to be expressed. Let's pray. 
Father, we're not all here suffering equally this morning, but everybody here has suffered or will. Help us to see lament as a good gift from you. And Father, for those who feel distant and cut off, Father, give them freedom and courage in their soul just to be quiet as we sing, just to ask for your help in learning to lament. Father, give us the freedom to say to you hard things that we've been afraid to say to anybody else. And Father, for those who who are not moving towards healing and towards hope in the gospel, I pray that this morning together we would see that this gift of lament is the first step in this journey of gospel renewal in our souls. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the true and better Job. Jesus, we thank you for pursuing us and taking the suffering we deserve for our rebellion in our place. And we thank you that when we do suffer now, you are sitting in the ashes with us, working to redeem every evil and every bad and every harm. We don't see it, we don't understand it, and quite honestly, we don't like it. But help us to endure and help us to to be honest with you in our pain. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.